The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. We come to the uh, conclusion of uh, this wonderful uh, book in Scripture this morning. And as we do come to this particular chapter, this final chapter in Ruth, what we're going to find is that the author has left us in a, in a state of suspense. You know, as we follow this story through, as you follow the story through over the last few weeks, I only came in at, at, uh, with it last week, of course, we've seen that uh, you know, Naomi and Ruth, particularly are two very vulnerable women living in Israel in, uh, in this particular uh, time of the judges. They are women without husbands and therefore they are women without a future and they are women without a hope. They're entirely at the mercy and kindness of others just in order to survive. And we've seen in chapter 2 as, as Ruth you know, goes out one day as she goes and gleans in a field in order to feed herself and Naomi, she meets this man called Boaz. And we're told in Scripture that he's a kind and generous man. And later on, we'll see that he's identified particularly as a near relative of Naomi, as a kinsman redeemer. And that is a, a, very much a theme through the book of Ruth, this, this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, if you're unsure of what that might mean, a kinsman redeemer, if you like, is, one, is, a, is a term that, that designates a particular person as a deliverer or a rescuer or a redeemer of, of, uh, of property or persons. Uh, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 47 to 55, you'll see where, how God sort of you know, made provision for this in his word. And this kinsman redeemer particularly was a male relative who had the privilege and the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, who was in danger, or who was in need. So that was the, that's this whole idea of this kinsman redeemer in Scripture. But also coupled with this idea of kinsman redeemer is this also this idea of what's called lever at marriage. And Mark may have explained this to you uh, previously in one of the, uh, the other sermons. But in, in, in ancient times, if a man died without a child, then it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased man. And a widow would, would marry a brother-in-law and the first son that was produced from that union was then considered to be the legal descendant of that dead husband. And so we're going to see these two particular ideas being played out in this passage in Ruth 4 uh, this morning. Of course, in the lead up to this, we've seen that Naomi has, has hatched a plan, if you like, with, with Ruth, that Ruth will go to Boaz, and we saw this last week in, in Ruth 3 that Mark preached on, where she goes to Boaz and she, she, she makes it known, or she actually proposes marriage to Boaz. We saw that take place on the threshing floor there in Ruth 3 last week. And of course, we see that Boaz responds posit positively to Ruth's offer. You know, throughout uh, this book, we've seen that Boaz admires the character of Ruth. He admires her faithfulness and her kindness to Naomi. You'll see that in Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. He, he, you know, he's, he's very much appreciative and admires the integrity of this woman, Ruth. 
you know, if you're perhaps a bit of a romantic and you're reading through this particular story, you know, I think, you know, in your mind, the hope is that Boaz is going to marry Ruth and that they're going to live happily ever after. Because after all, as we, we read through it, they seem the perfect couple, don't they? Ruth and Boaz. But however, a spanner is just about to be thrown into the works. For Boaz, although keen to marry Ruth, says that there is another kinsman redeemer, a closer relative to Naomi than him. We see that in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, where Boaz says this, and he says, and now it is, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, Boaz speaking of himself, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, then good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Therefore lie down until the morning. Boaz says there is another kinsman redeemer, a closer relative than he is. I wonder what went through Ruth's mind at that particular instant. As she lay there on the floor next to Boaz. Perhaps her heart and her hopes were set on Boaz, but she could end up having to marry this, this entire stranger. What a thing to face for a woman. Boaz, though, well, he's on the case. And we're going to see that this morning. And Naomi assures Ruth that he will not rest, but will set her the matter quickly. And that's where we pick up our story today. In Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to want to read to you the, the, the first few verses of this chapter where it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, the gate of the city, and he'd sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. The stranger says, I will redeem it. Here we find Boaz at the city gate. The city gate in those days was the thriving social and business hub of the city, much like the old kind of town squares. It was at the city gate where people would congregate, where they would, they would catch up with all the latest news and the latest gossip. It was at the city gate where business transactions and legal matters were, dis, were, were transacted and conducted. As Boaz sits down at the gate, we read that it just so happens that, behold, along comes the Redeemer that he was waiting for. Now, it could just be that this would be the natural place for Boaz to encounter this particular person. After all, everyone would make their way through the gate to either enter or leave the city. And yet it would appear that, as we read through this, the, the narrator wants us to understand something else that is also at work here in this particular context. And that, of course, is the providence 
and the sovereignty of God. We see that this again, this is a, a major theme through the book of Ruth. If you turn back in Ruth to chapter 1, we see that you know, after you know, Naomi has, has lost her husband and her, uh, her sons there in, in Moab and she returns to Israel, you know, she went away full, she comes back empty, she's got one of her daughter-in-laws with her, Ruth. They really don't have any sort of particular uh, you know, hope for, you know, for, for what the future holds. They come back and we read at the end of this particular chapter, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. They returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem and it was the beginning of barley harvest. Here they were, they were coming back. They'd, They'd left Israel because Israel had been in famine. They'd gone away looking for food to the country of Moab and you know, God had said to his people that they were to trust him, that they were you know, to, uh, to continue to obey him and, and, and follow him. God had said that he didn't want his people having anything to do with the, the nation or the people of Moab. He didn't want their, their, their worship to be corrupted by their false gods. He didn't want them intermarrying so that you know, their, the, the, their, their, their faith would be undermined by these, this influence of these false gods. And yet Naomi and her husband and sons had gone there and now they'd come back and Naomi had nothing, absolutely nothing. But in the midst of that, there is this, this, this inkling, if you like, this sign that there is, that there is something about to happen. The barley harvest is about to take place. And we see there God, this, this, this unseen hand of God, this, this providence of God bringing Naomi back at this particular time just as God is about to provide for his people again through this harvest. God's providence and his sovereignty. We see it again in Ruth chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, where, you know, when they come back, you know, Naomi and Ruth, they have nothing. And so God again had made provision in his word that, that anyone who owned land, who, who, who planted a crop, they weren't to reap the land right to the very edges of the field, but they were to actually leave the crops around the edge of the field so that the people who were poor could come along and actually reap some grain for themselves in order to feed themselves there was a level of this social concern but also a level of dignity for the people as well that there wasn't just a a handout that was given but it was actually these people were able to come and actually reap for themselves and find provision there and again we see this this providence and sovereignty of God because as Naomi goes to glean in this particular field we, we read that as it so happened she found herself in the field of Boaz, this kinsman redeemer. God's sovereignty and providence at work there. Again, this unseen hand of God, but God is superintending over all of these things that are taking place here. And again, we see that here in chapter 4. As Boaz goes to the city gate, we find that as it so happens, behold, the man that he is wanting to see, all of a sudden, here he comes up to the city gate and Boaz says to him fellow come and sit down here turn aside friend sit down here and he turned aside and sat down you know another thing that uh, we need to um, understand here as we reflect on this uh, this this sovereignty and this uh, this this providence of God is that um, you know with Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz 
you know, they, they also, there doesn't seem to be any kind of hesitancy on their part to actually take initiative when, it's, when, they, when they deem it appropriate. You know, they're kind of acting and they're trusting that in the midst of their, of, of their acting as they, as they go about, you know, their day-to-day lives, that, that, that they can trust in God that God's sovereign purposes will be worked out in the midst of that. And so they're happy to, to be able to, to, to use their brains. God has given them minds. He's given them you know, an understanding and a wisdom to be able to make these kind of decisions. But they do so in the context of knowing that God's providence and sovereign hand is still over and above that and that his purposes are being worked out. And so they act on that. You know, it's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because sometimes as Christians, we can get really, really hung up on what is the will of God for my life? You know, what kind of job does God want me to do? What kind of person does God want me to marry? You know, should I do this or should I do that? Am I going to be in the will of God if I do this? Well, folks, sometimes, you know, that, that kind of mentality, although it's, a, it's, a, it's an admirable kind of mentality to have, sometimes that can keep us so bound up that we end up doing nothing. And what God wants us to understand is that you know, we've, got, or we've already been given his word to guide us in our lives. And so as we seek to, 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 to align our lives with the word of God and with living our lives in that, in that praise and that honour of God, in that, that humble submission to him and his authority and, and his instruction, as we seek to obey him, we can also you know, act um, in ways that we can make decisions trusting that, it, Lord, we're doing this and we want to do it in, in honour of you. Lord, we want to make sure that we're following you know, in, your, in, in the footsteps that your word plants out for us. But we're going to, you know, i just give a, a quick example of this, for instance. You know, like, um, as you're well aware, we're, Carl and I will be concluding our ministry here in, in, in a few months. Throughout these last several months, it's, God, I've really been searching, God, what do you want from me? Lord, what's your will for me in this? And it's, it's, been, it's been quiet. It's, there's really been no kind of voice of God, you know, or writing on the wall to say, Duncan, do this, you know? But it's, Lord... I know that you've called me to serve you, but I, I know I have this deep peace in my heart of knowing, and Coral's the same. We've, we've had this deep peace in our hearts of knowing that, you know, that our time here has come to an end. You know, that, 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 that we've done what God wanted us to do here, and now it's time for us to move on. And so we've, we've taken that step in faith, but we've done it knowing that, you know, Lord, we're, we're seeking to honour you in this, but we don't know what the future holds, but we know, God, that you're the one. I know it's a bit of one of those um, you know, sort of fridge magnet things, but God, you're the one who holds our future. And we can trust you in that. And I trust that, that each of us will understand that ourselves, that as we seek to live our lives in honour and worship of God, as we seek to obey his word, we can make decisions, we can step out in faith, we can trust him in the midst of our lives, knowing that his sovereignty and his providence will act, you know, and he'll bring about his purposes for us. You 
You know, these characters that we see in the scriptures here, they are quick to give God the praise and the glory for his provision and blessing in their lives. And they also seek God's blessing you know, in the lives of others. But, but as, they, as they live out their lives, they understand that all that they have comes from this gracious and loving hand of their creator. And, they can, they, and that God can be trusted to work out his divine purposes in the midst of their day-to-day lives, whether their circumstances be good or not so good. Can we do the same today, folks? Can we be those people of God today that we ourselves can know that we can live out our day-to-day lives on recognising that God can be trusted, that his divine purposes are being worked out in the midst of our lives, whether our circumstances be good or whether they be bad. And can we praise God for them, regardless of whether they're good or bad? You know, one other thing to notice here in regard to the sovereignty and providence of God are the references to prayer that, that, that litter the four chapters of this book. Of course, we see in, in, in the prayers of the people, it signifies a, de- a dependence upon God in their lives. And these prayers are often in, in the context, too, of the people's conversations. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, we see that Naomi prays for her widowed daughters to find rest in the homes of another husband. In Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4, as Boaz comes into the field, he gives a greeting, but the greeting itself is in the form of a prayer of blessing to his workers. Later on in chapter 2 and verse 12, Boaz commends Ruth for the way that she has served Naomi and he invokes a prayer of blessing on her. In chapter 2 and verse 20, Naomi prays for Boaz. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz prays for Ruth. And finally, in, in, the, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we'll see the people themselves pray for Ruth and Boaz. And one of the guys who's written a bit of a commentary on the book of Ruth, a fellow called David Atkinson, he's written a little short commentary called The Bible Speaks Today Commentary Series, and he writes this. He said, oh, he says, how much of this small book throbs with the life of prayer? Every aspect of life, from the the ordinary to the extraordinary, is all lived out in the faith that God is there and that God cares. And folks, this is the the challenge again for us today, particularly in the light of the the world situation we find ourselves in, in our own, the the context of our own country and how things are changing so, so radically and so quickly that we can know that, that as we live out our lives, that, that, that it's all being done, all being done. We're living out our lives in, in the faith that God is there and that God cares. Can you say that with certainty today in your life, that you know that God is there and that God cares for you in your context, in our context? You know, as we read through this book of Ruth, we should be inspired and we should be encouraged to take prayer more seriously in our own lives. To expect God to to hear our prayers, to know that he loves us, he cares for us, he's there with us 
and we can also expect God to answer those prayers sometimes in ways that will absolutely astound us. Do we pray with that kind of expectancy today? That was a real challenge for me personally. You know, I often pray and I don't really expect God to work, you know, in, in, in some kind of context. I don't, well, I do, I, in, my, in my mind I do, but I guess deep down in my heart sometimes I wonder. God, will you? Do you find the same? You know in your mind that, that God is the God of the impossible, that God is the one who can do anything. And yet when it comes to prayer, we, we throw these prayers up to God, but deep down in our hearts we really wonder, I don't know, God, I don't know if you'll really answer this one. We need to take prayer more seriously and expect God to answer in ways which are according to his purposes, but sometimes in ways that will astound us. Well, as we get back to our narrative, we see that Boaz sees this man, he calls him to come and sit down, and then he also calls 10 men of the elders of the city to join them. We see that in verse 2 of our passage. And these men were there to, to act as witnesses to the conversation and the proposal that Boaz is about to put to this man. And he begins by saying that Naomi has a field that she needs to sell. And that seeing that he is Naomi's closest relative, this, this kinsman redeemer, that he has first dibs on buying the land in order to redeem it for Naomi so that it doesn't go out of her family. And in agreeing to act as a kinsman redeemer, this man will, will buy the land and he'll also care for Naomi by taking her into his house. It's a pretty attractive business proposition. The man gets a, a new piece of land with which to work and to reap the rewards of it as they grow crops and things on it, but also this land will become part of his estate. And all he has to do is care for Naomi. And of course, as he processes this, this, this proposal quickly there in, in his mind, you know, he, he's, he, all of a sudden he's just seeing dollar signs, thinking, you beauty, it's my lucky day. Of course I'll redeem it, Boaz. You know, I'd be a fool if I didn't, wouldn't I? And that's where the next twist comes in the story. Because this guy, can, as he sees this quick and tidy profit to be made, Boaz then hits him with another surprise. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those, but wait, there's more kind of deals. You know what I mean? But wait, there's more. You also get to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. And you accept the responsibility to produce an heir for her dead husband, Malon, who will one day inherit that land. We see that in verse 5, where it says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so all of a sudden, this redeemer is starting to backpedal. He can't get out of the deal quick enough because what was looking like a nice profit is quickly turning into a very significant and costly deal for him. Because not only does he have to fork out money for the land, 
But then later, his, that land is actually not going to be his, but is actually going to go to, to the heir to that he'll produce with Ruth, and that will be Marlon's land. It will be the, the, the inheritance of Marlon's um, uh, uh, son, this whole Leverite marriage idea that we were talking about earlier. And of course, this is a price that he is just not willing to pay. So he gives up his right and he hands it to Boaz. We see that in verses 6 to 8. He says, Then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Marlon. This man could not get out of this deal quick enough. And so he gives up his right and he literally hands it to Boaz and says, here, have my shoe. It's a bit of a weird kind of thing, isn't it? I wonder how many people are walking around in those days, their wardrobes are full of one shoe. <coughs> it's one of those things that sort of goes through your mind as you, as you think about that, isn't it? By the way, did you catch the name of this fellow? No. Why? Because his name's not actually mentioned in, this, in the whole book. His name is never mentioned. Now I think perhaps in one way it's a blessing because it's not, so as not to, the, 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 the raider's not recorded his name so he doesn't embarrass this poor fellow and his future relatives. You know, his desire to focus more on protecting his own wealth instead of showing care and concern for his relative is certainly not a high point in this guy's life, is it? Not at all. And here we see another biblical principle at play and it's one of those principles which Jesus constantly calls our attention to in the Gospels and one we see worked out so, so often and so frequently in the Old Testament. God's care and concern for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalised. You know, how God has got this incredible care and concern for them. And we see it come out in Jesus' teaching where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but instead treasures where? In heaven. In Matthew 6. We see it in Jesus' parable of the rich fool. This man had, had got all this stuff. He'd accumulated all this stuff for himself and made this big name for himself, so to speak. And Jesus says, you fool, this night your life will be, be demanded of you. And Jesus goes on to say, therefore we are to be rich towards God in our lives. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life, in other words, whoever would, would go after the things of, that, that bring security in this life, whoever would, would save his life will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever just gives over his life in the service of God for my sake will actually find a life, a quality of life that is far, far much better than anything this world has to offer. See, this man was all about protecting his name and his future, yet in a book that is absolutely filled with names, this man is nameless. 
And the reason is because he was all about himself and the here and now. He wasn't willing to serve others at his own expense. He wasn't willing to be a channel of blessing used by God for his glory. This book has a lot to teach us about the kindness of God. And we're going to explore that a little bit more in in, in detail in in a minute. But, But one of the key ways I want us to reflect on for a moment that God shows his kindness to his people is through the kind acts of others doesn't he? That the way, one of the, the primary ways that God shows his kindness to his people is through the kindness of his people in their service to those around about them. Matthew 25 is quite a sobering chapter, but this particular section of verses in Matthew 25 is very sobering. Jesus is saying when the Son of Man comes in his glory there at the end of time where God brings all things to a conclusion and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. As you served these people, you were serving me and bringing glory to me. Folks, one of the things that I've been incredibly saddened about in recent times... And it's, not, it, it's come to my ears from, from lots of different contexts and scenarios, but it's this, is that it seems just in recent times the people who call themselves God's church have become incredibly self-focused. They've become incredibly selfish. They've become incredibly... Um, uh, lacking in the will to actually serve their brothers and sisters in need around them. We have seen time after time after time after time where people have been in incredible needs and yet the people of God are often the last to step up to the plate and help out. 
That's a sad indictment on God's church, folks. And each and every one of us actually need to search our own hearts and really, truly ask God's Spirit to reveal to us if we ourselves have been guilty of these things. Of being more like the man who is too busy building his own kingdom and making a name for himself and gathering stuff to himself and, 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 and foregoing looking after the needs of those around about him. Are we more like this man or are we more like Boaz? Who do we most resemble in this story? And it's easy to point the finger at others. And it's easy to criticise others. And folks, it's not about actually looking around and looking about how others are serving others well or or who aren't serving others well. It's not about picking out and criticising, you know, Joe or Josephine. I'm just picking those names out of, out of random, so if your name's Joe or Josephine, I apologise. It's not about picking out those people and saying, ah, oh, they're really not being very Christian in all of this. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about each and every one of us actually standing there at the feet, at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, am I more like you? Or am I just about me? Well, Boaz, as we read on, finally gets his bride, Ruth the Moabites. We see that in verses 9 through to 12 where it says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Marlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses and may the Lord make the woman Ruth who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This Moabites, this foreigner, this person who had no place really in the, fa- in, in, in the, in the people of Israel, the, the, the people say, may God bless her in such a way that she has these children and she becomes like the matriarchs of the people of Israel, Leah and Rachel. And may Boaz's name be, become great as well in the, in the, in the place of, of Bethlehem. This wonderful, again, this, this prayer of, to, to God. And as we read on in verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The narrator goes on to tell us that again, the prayer of these people is answered. And through Boaz and Ruth's union, God provides Naomi with a redeemer. 
We see that in verses 14 and 15 where it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of all your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name. In fact, they actually, you know, um, they agreed with the name that was given to this boy by Ruth and Boaz, the name Obed. And we're told that then Obed would become the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. When Naomi first returned to Bethlehem from Moab, we're told that she had gone away full but that she had returned empty. She said that the people should call her Mara because the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. And yet here at the end of the book we see Naomi incredibly blessed again. She has a daughter-in-law who is better than seven sons. In Israel, a family, a father who had seven sons was considered to have the perfect family, the best kind of family. But here, Naomi is told that Ruth is better than seven sons, better than any kind of family you could hope for. And not only that, she has received a grandson who would be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Grandparents, you'll get that, won't you? Hey, yes. Parents, perhaps not quite as much with all the struggles and hardships at times. Grandparents get it easy. They can just hand them back when they get a bit irritable and that sort of thing. <clears throat> it's a wonderful way in which, you know, it's, it's really interesting. As you read through this chapter, I encourage you to go back and read the end of each chapter, chapter one, two, three, and four, and see how it is an update on Naomi's situation and the kindness that God is showing to her in this passage. It's a great thing to to, to go back and do. This grandson, however, would play a bigger part than just in Naomi and Ruth's and Boaz's life because as we see, he will be the grandfather of King David, Israel's greatest king. Remember that this is all taking place in the time of the judges, Kings weren't even on people's minds at this particular point in time and yet God already is preparing the way for this king to come. The time of the judges, we are told, was a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Reminds us so much of today, doesn't it? Our own context, our own society today, people are just doing what's right in their own eyes. But God has provided a king, a redeemer, Through the line of David, Jesus Christ himself. You want to read about that? Go and read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Now as we draw this passage to a close this morning, we need to see that Boaz himself is a a shadow, if you like, of, of, of Jesus, our Redeemer. Boaz took the initiative in bringing about this act of redemption for Naomi and Ruth. We see that he wasn't motivated by, by profit or pride or anything like that, but he was motivated by love and kindness and faithfulness to God. He was willing to redeem Naomi and Ruth at great personal cost to himself. And he provides a name and an inheritance where before there was only ruin. 
Folks, Ruth and Naomi could have done nothing about this themselves. They were entirely dependent upon Boaz as their redeemer. And this is the case for us. For in accomplishing what God did for Naomi and Ruth through Boaz, he has accomplished for all of us who will admit our own need of a saviour. By confessing our sin and by seeking God's forgiveness and admitting that we ourselves are incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of making ourselves right with God. And it is recognising that through his incarnation, God taking on flesh himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came, who became our perfect kinsman redeemer, who became like us in our humanity. So that by his perfect life and sacrificial death, he might also become our redeemer before God. Another commentator says this, he says, even the honourable name that Boaz earned for himself pales into insignificance when placed next to the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Boaz's love for Ruth and Naomi is nothing compared to the love God has for sinners and saved alike. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He came to seek those who are lost you and me. He came to give his life that we may have life. He came to be a restorer of life and a nourisher to us in our lives. And he's done this through securing our salvation before God and an eternal inheritance, a name that will live on into eternity with him. So can I leave you with this thought? The next time you wonder if God is there, the next time you wonder if God truly is kind, the next time you wonder if God truly can be trusted, that your circumstances just seem that, that too overwhelming, that life just seems to be too hard, that, that, that all hope may appear to you at that particular time lost. Can I encourage you to be reminded of this book of Ruth? For God may be unseen, but he is certainly there and he loves us beyond measure and that he is working out his good and perfect purposes. And for all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus as Saviour, he promises to never leave you or forsake you, and he will one day promise to bring you home to your glorious inheritance with him. May you add your voice to mine this morning when we say, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left us this day without a Redeemer. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.